So the cross, the subject of the cross. Uh, you bring up the cross, the message of the cross, you get a lot of different responses from people. Uh, for some, the cross is an accessory, a complement to a particular dress or particular outfit. Like, oh, that cross looks good, I'll just wear a cross around my neck, or I'll just wear this as a piece of jewelry. Uh, for some, the cross uh, is, uh, is a, it stands as a monument in a cemetery. Most of you probably have, uh, saw the news or read reports of the ACLU uh, trying to remove this 60-foot cross uh, in Maryland. Uh, it was at a cemetery honoring World War I veterans. Uh, thankfully, the Supreme Court recognized that this cross can stand, and it does and still will stand in that uh, public land in Maryland. But it's ir- ironic to me that the cross... Uh, generates all kinds of emotions and all kinds of responses in people. For those of us who are saved, for those of us who understand what Jesus did on the cross, it is the source of our salvation. Behind me is a cross overlooking the baptistry. I think that's kind of interesting. Because the cross is where Jesus poured out his blood. And where does an individual meet the blood of Christ? In Christian baptism. It's not the water that saves. It's the water is emblematic of the blood. And the blood is what washes away the sin. Wash away your sins, a calling on the name of the Lord, Paul says. And then we're forced to look here in the center of the, of the staging area, and we see the communion trays representing the body and, and the poured blood of our Savior. Uh, so all of this is emblematic of the power of the cross. And so Paul says, look, look, church, please note, we continue. We preach Christ crucified. Now, the pronoun we is important here because he's referring to his colleagues, He didn't just say, I preach Christ crucified. In this particular text, he says, we, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Jesus. Jesus is the focus of our message. And we can't preach about Jesus and not include his death on the cross. Now, when he says we, he's referring to Peter. He's referring to Silas. He's referring to Barnabas. He's referring to Onesiphorus and Stephanus and Titus and Timothy and all of his colleagues. And even though many of these men came from different backgrounds, some were converted Gentiles, others were Judaizers converted to Christianity, he knew no matter where your background, we all know we're preaching the same message. And the cross is the centerpiece of what we speak of, and it's the centerpiece of our faith. We have a lot of ministries here at Kissimmee Christian Church, and we've made this point very clear whether it's our homeschool ministry or Kissimmee Christian Academy or our Hoops Church on Thursday night, Celebrate Recovery Ministry on Friday, whether it's our mothers of preschoolers, and the list goes on and on of the different ministries that are offered here, one thing is absolutely certain, and that is all roads lead to the cross. All roads lead to the cross. Our community outreach service, our, our inner city workings on Tuesday, all point not just to helping people physically get on their feet. You can go to, you can go to, you seek social justice, you'll see it, you'll see it complemented in the secular world. And I told our 830 audience today of almost 65 homeless people, I said, look, you can go anywhere and get a free meal. We offer it here. Well, what separates the church from the secular world is, We have an obligation, a spiritual obligation, to make sure that you hear the message of the cross while you're here. That's what's different from the church and secular organizations. We continually point people in all of these ministries to the cross. Think about this fact. When Peter and John healed the man who was lame for years at the temple gate in Acts, the fourth chapter, verse 2, Luke records that the governing authorities were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
Philip went down to the land of Samaria, the grand city of Samaria. And according to Acts, the 8th chapter, verse 5, quote, he preached Christ to them. When the same evangelist Philip met up with the treasurer of the nation of Ethiopia, a very well-to-do Ethiopian, in Acts 8, chapter verse 35, the Bible says that Philip got into his limo, or some of your translations use the word chariot, anyway, and what did he do? Quote, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus to him. As soon as Paul was converted to Christianity, the Scriptures tell us in Acts 9, chapter verse 20, he, quote, straightway immediately preached Christ in the synagogues. When Paul eventually made it to the great city of Athens, a city covered and littered with false gods and images and idols, the Bible says in the book of Acts, he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Every illustration, these are just a few. We could go on all day of the examples of the apostles, the early teachers, the evangelists, those converted to Christianity, all saw the need to preach Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the intention of these great first century men was to convince people that Jesus was indeed the incarnate Son of God and that he did indeed die by crucifixion as was prophesied and rose again. Now, the people knew this information. It was verifiable. That's what makes 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, such a powerful text of Scripture because Paul underscores that fact. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, listen to Paul's words here, verifying the cross the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the cross and from the grave, and how Jesus was seen by hundreds of people after his bodily resurrection. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, and this probably took place around two to three years after the resurrection of Christ. But it's still a buzz in Jerusalem. It's still a buzz all over the world. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's the good news revolving around the death the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I declare to you the gospel, this good news, which I preach to you, which also now you have received, and which you stand. In other words, your whole life, your worldview, now stands on the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ and the establishment of his church. Our entire being, our definition of life, stands on all the facts revolving around the cross and the empty tomb by which also you you are saved if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you unless you believe in vain. And Paul says there's no reason to think that you're believing in vain because there's factual evidence that supports all this information revolve around the death of Christ and his resurrection. I want you to know today that when you partake of the Lord's Supper in a few minutes and you look at the cross and the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, you're not believing in Christ in vain. There is substantial evidence to support the truth claims of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. You're not asked to walk blindly into this faith. You're not asked to serve Jesus Christ blindly. You're not asked by God to completely revamp and remodel your worldview based on some kind of information that may not be able to be verified. Paul says, look, you are writing all of your faith on substantial, historical, credible evidence. And we've got to convince the world of that. Yeah, it takes faith, but not blind faith. Faith that is absolutely credible. Paul goes on to write, I deliver to you first in verse 3 of all that which I have received, that Christ did die for our sins according to the prophecies, according to the information that the prophet spoke of. It was all fulfilled in Christ. Verse 4. And that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to these prophecies, according to these scriptures. And then he was seen by Cephas and then by the other twelve. 
He was seen by over 500 people in verse 6, of whom the greater part still are here today to testify we saw him with our own eyes. And then he was seen by James, his half-brother, who eventually became the evangelist of the church of Jerusalem. And then last of all, he was seen by me, the apostle born out of due time. In other words, I wasn't a part of the original team. I got drafted later, but I also saw him. I also witnessed him. Now, what Paul is asking us to do is this. If the message of the cross is to be the centerpiece of our preaching and our teaching here at Kissimmee Christian Church, or the church universally, it also has to become the centerpiece of our life. It has to become what drives us. It has to be what we contemplate and think of. And it's not just the historical aspect of the cross. Because you could walk out today and meet someone at a restaurant, and you can discuss with them that you're a Christian, and they're like, hey, that's great, that's great. And you might even bring up the subject of of Christ and who Jesus is. And they might even go, hey, man, I truly believe that Jesus was a good man. And I believe the historical evidence that supports the fact that he died on a cross, a Roman cross put to death by Romans. I believe all that. But there's a difference between just believing the historical information revolving around the cross, which a lot of secular people do. I mean, you go to universities and history professors and they'll say, hey, this Jesus, man, he truly did leave and live, and I, I believe the evidence supports that he died at the hands of the Romans on a cross. But then we have to ask the question, do you believe in the power of the cross, the message behind the cross? Do you believe that the cross now becomes the driving force, not only historically, but philosophically? Do you understand that everything revolving around the cross promotes now a complete and total lifestyle change that I have to possess in my life if the cross is really going to be genuine and authentic in my own personal life. So it's time to recognize not just the crucifixion of Christ from a historical standpoint, it's important that we receive the message of the cross, all that Jesus incorporated in dying for our sins as truth, and then we allow the cross and the message of the gospel to actually change our narrative, our worldview, our lifestyle, and our walk with Jesus now in a beautiful path of righteousness and holiness. Romans 2.16 Powerful text, powerful scripture here. Paul writes, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The secrets of men are the motives that lie behind our actions. All of that will be judged. And what will Jesus Christ use as a measuring stick? Whether or not we received, we internalized, and lived by the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not just believing it happened, but believing it happened to the point it literally changes the way in which we operate. Now, were there other options and messages for the apostles and the evangelists to preach and teach? You better believe it. There were other very pertinent issues to address. Uh, Slavery existed during the days of the early church. In fact, many of the converts in the early church were slaves. Uh, idolatry existed. Uh, women's rights were tested constantly in the early days of the church and in, in communities uh, surrounding the early church. But Peter and Paul and James and other church leaders knew that they these were all symptoms of larger, more pressing issues, and that was finding first the source of all truth. And I really believe, uh, even today, there are a lot of social ills, there are a lot of sins in our community. And sometimes we find ourselves addressing those particular sins and those particular ills. But what I find interesting of the early church is they went ahead and said, look, if you can preach and help people understand the scriptures are the source of all truth, the Jesus that died on the cross, the Jesus that rose three days later, that 
the Jesus that 50 days after his bodily resurrection established his church, the, the church that holds to the scriptures as the source of all truth, if we can get people to see the bigger picture, we can begin to work on the symptoms. But I think we've got to drive people first and foremost to the cross. We've got to drive people to Jesus as the source of all that is true. If you have a leak in your house, you know there's a pipe leak or an AC leak, it does no good just to locate where the water is dripping. We did that for years here, and then we realized it's those stupid skylights. $8,000 later, there are brand new skylights out, but we had to identify the source. We were looking for the leaks, and it was like, finally someone said, hey, it's these old skylights. Those are replaced. The leaks have stopped, hence the new carpet. We're only going to stop with half of it because we just can't seem to get rid of all the maroon. Just kidding. It's, the rest of it will be taken out there. Anyway, got to locate the leak. Got to find out where the source is. Listen, the source of all that is true is Christ. Source of all that is true is Christ. The early church fathers knew, preached Jesus as the source of all that is true, and you will knock out the social ills of your community. I think it's also interesting today that I believe that if the world would embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, many of the, 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 the things that we see taking place in our society might not necessarily exist. You know, I, I, I've always believed this. You say, well, Jim, you're a little naive. I mean, assume that you can take this gospel message and, and literally take it to any facet of society and think that that's going to change things. Folks, let me ask you a question. Maybe I'm the only one that believes this, but do, do you believe today that if the church could move and mobilize its message effectively to every crevice of society, that we could actually begin to see the landscape of society change. Not just society and the world change within the four walls of a sanctuary, but I'm talking about effectively changing the worldviews and the way people think in the world. Do you believe that the cross has that kind of power? I do. I do, and I'll go to my grave to believe in this. I, I, I believe this. I don't believe we would need as many labor unions in America today if people would operate, management and employees would manage themselves and operate themselves on the same principles as a Sermon on the Mount. I don't know that we would need as many, I don't know if we would need as many trial lawyers because some people would be able to resolve, not all, but some people would resolve some of these issues without having to take each other to court. See, the point is, I... Stupid me. I really believe the cross can actually change the way the world operates. I don't think we would need as much money going to defense funds if we could convince the world of a greater cause other than themselves, and that's the power of the cross. I do. I really believe that. I don't know that we would need as many counselors today if people could learn to look at each other and look at life and look at the family through the lens of the cross. See, I believe the cross is that powerful. I do. And I, I love this text, and you'll hear me refer to it periodically. I don't, I don't have it on the screen because it just came to me. But in, um, I, I keep going to this text. In Acts, the 8th chapter, Philip goes to Samaria. And the Bible says in Acts, the 8th chapter, uh, verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word in verse 8. And when they went to Samaria, the Bible says there was great joy in that city. Great joy in that city. And I believe there was great joy in that city because the cross was hitting every corner of that community. It wasn't, notice what 
Paul or Luke doesn't say. He doesn't say there was great joy in the church building. That's understood. Oh, and they had issues. They had crisis. They had dilemmas. But because everybody understood, preach Jesus crucified, keep that the focal point of what you do. Luke records that the church grew to such a rate and at such a pace that the message of the cross, the hope that surrounds the message of the cross, redemption that surrounds the message of the cross, grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins and hope of eternal life and a new change of life and a new venue all was revolving around the cross. It literally affected the city. And I want to see Kissimmee to be a great city. And you know what? We can pass all kinds of new laws and we can try to reconstruct the way in which roads are developed or not. But until this city has a spiritual revival and the cross of Christ becomes the focal point of who we are and the church takes its rightful place in the community by preaching with love, Jesus is the source of all truth. That's how we know we are affecting real, positive, holistic change. That's how you know great joy can come to Kissimmee. But it ain't going to happen if the cross isn't centerpiece to what we do. The gospel, as Russell Moore in his book Onward states, is also social. It reconciles people with one another and motivates them to care for human flourishing and human suffering. We love our fellow human beings and we serve them in their suffering precisely because we believe that God loves not just humanity, but God loves the individual. And I believe God blesses individuals. I believe God blesses institutions. I still believe God is in the business of blessing nations and principalities who recognize that they are nothing unless they've identified with the cross and the message of the cross. Accepting Jesus means he becomes Lord of everything. Accepting the message of the cross means that everything I do now falls and channels itself under the authority of Christ in Scripture. You know, I've thought to myself from time to time, the Trinity, the Deity, the Triune was such a beautiful team made up of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can you think of a better team than God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? That's not a bad team, right? And when you've got a team that good, you don't want to mess it up. But do you realize, do you realize today that even God himself felt as if the team was not totally complete unless he reached out and reintroduced himself through Christ so that we could become a part of that great family. When you read the New Testament, you constantly see where this inheritance, this family has, and, and the benefits and blessings of this spiritual family has been introduced through Christ to us through his death. The reality is God did not want to go on without having a relationship with humanity. And so he used the cross and his son, the perfect lamb, to die on that cross. And as the cross has two beings and intersects at the middle, Christ became that which intersected God and humanity. To the point that now God wants us into this family. God says, Jim, I want to bring you to the table. I want to dine with you. I want you to be a part of this deity. I'm like, God, you don't want me in there. I'm going to foul it up. God says, Jim, why do you think I sent Jesus? I sent Jesus to die for you. I sent Jesus to live for you. I sent Jesus to establish his church because I want that relationship with you. But it's not going to come apart from a saving relationship with Christ. 
Bob Shannon, who is, again, a tremendous preacher in our movement, preached actually for years at the First Christian Church in Largo. His son is on staff at Johnson University. Um, wrote this in the book that I showed you earlier. Quote, for us, preaching Christ is actually keeping in step with the traditions of the church in the first century. Just preaching Christ crucified means we're just staying in step with the great traditions of the church leaders in the first century. In the Yale Lectures on Preaching for 1896, Henry Van Dyke said these words, and I quote, It is plain that the force which started the religion of Jesus was indeed the person of Jesus. Christ was his own Christianity. Christ was the core of his own gospel. And it was this that sent the apostles into the world, reluctantly and hesitantly at first, but then joyfully and triumphantly as they begin to really understand the message of the cross and what it really meant to them and those around them. Like men driven by an irresistible impulse. It was the manifestation of Christ that converted them. It was the love of Christ that constrained them, and it was the power of Christ that propelled them. Let me ask a question this morning. I want us to all think about this. This is what I want you to ponder throughout the week, and I have to ponder it as well. Can we still be a people in which a cross-centered message is always on our hearts and always on our lips? Now, I I challenged the congregation, the family, last week. I said, look, evangelism, our personal testimony of what Christ is doing through our lives based on accepting Scripture as truth, uh, should be on our lips all the time. And we ought to be challenging people and encouraging people to think about the cross, to think about salvation, to think about a walk with Jesus every day. And I, I don't want us just to wait till we're around our friends, around a comfortable audience to do this. It needs to be a part of what we are. It needs to compel us and propel us and, and challenge us. We ought not be constrained by fear to bring up the subject of the gospel to people. One writer said, Any Christian witness that doesn't start and finish with the gospel is unspeakably cruel. Any Christian that has been bought and paid for salvation-wise through the blood of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus, favor we got we didn't deserve, and fails to tell people that same message is unspeakably cruel. With this I close. The story has it of a wealthy man who died apparently without leaving a will. Consequently, according to law, the estate was to be divided among the several surviving cousins who were next of kin. Also, as prescribed by law, the deceased household goods and other items of personal property were to be converted into cash in a public auction. During the sale, the auctioneer held up a framed photograph, but no one bid on the photograph, including the cousins and the family. Later, a woman approached the auctioneer and asked him if she might purchase the picture for for a dollar, which was all that she had. She said it was a photograph of the deceased man's only son. She went on to relate that she had been a servant in the deceased household when the boy lost his life trying to rescue a drowning person and that she had loved him very, very much. The auctioneer accepted the dollar and the woman went home and placed the photograph on a table right beside her bed. It was then she noticed something protruding from the very back of the frame and she undid the backing and there to her amazement was the rich man's will. And the instructions of the will were simple. I give and bequeath all of my possessions, all of my wealth, to the person who cares enough for my son to cherish his photograph. 
So today, our eternal life, our spiritual rewards, our destiny, our hope, all revolves around the person who cares enough for God's Son to accept Him as Lord and Savior, to fully embrace the gospel message personally, to confess the name of Jesus, to have your sins washed away in Christian baptism, and to rise to walk in a newness of life, and to carry the message of the cross, the hope behind the message of the cross, the lifestyle changes that will ultimately take place because of the promises of the cross. Do you and I care enough to embrace God's Son today?